The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing just wonderfully. How are you doing? Uh, dandy. Dandy is the word. Dandy. <laughs> you never hear people say dandy anymore, but I'm doing dandy. No, yeah. not unless they're talking about someone who's a very uh, foppish dresser, <laughs> well, which you, you are. You know me. <laughs> I, I have known you to usually have some kind of feather in your voluminous hat. That, that's you. You've described me to a T. Hey, Ben, who anyway. is on the show today? Well, we kind of have a double header if you will, of Sundance projects that we, uh, you did one of the interviews and I did one of the interviews. So I interviewed Erica Tremblay and Carolina Costa of the amazing movie Fancy Dance. I hope a lot of people see it. I I should check in and see if it uh, got distribution, but uh, it's an excellent film. And then you did an interview on uh, King Cole. Who did you interview for King Cole? I did. I interviewed uh, the director and the cinematographer. The director is Elaine Sheldon. And then the cinematographer is Curran Sheldon. And they Mm. happen to uh, share a a last name and uh, are married as well. So there's that. I'm I'm calling nepotism on this one. (laughs) That's it's fair. That's a, that's a fair call. Fair enough. Uh, all right. So Ben, close focus today is kind of interesting. Close focus. It was a conversation that you and I started having before we went to to uh, record tonight. Uh, a friend of the show, Bill Totolo, reached out, and uh, I'm going to friend re- of the show, and, and I would say personal friend of both of us, Bill Totolo, who filled in for me when I was out with the deadly COVID, which by the way was two years ago. Right now, oh yeah, I had, I, I had the COVID. And Bill, I've actually had the pleasure of getting to work with Bill on at least two occasions, and he's awesome. So uh, whenever Bill says anything, I'm 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 all ears. So all what right. did Bill say? So Bill sent me a message this afternoon that says, after all these years of hosting the podcast, hundreds of interviews, what locust of interest, what traits in common, what insights have you gleaned? What is the glue that binds them together or the spark that makes them unique? Did you learn Mm. anything new about the artists and artisans? Uh, Did it reinforce your existing opinion? Uh, If chat GPT and mid journey combined forces to birth the perfect cinematographer, what would that look like? And then he says, uh, can be general or specific, no limitations. Do you want to take a, Mm. take a stab at that? Is there something that you, uh, yeah, after, after all these years of doing this, what have you learned? I mean, I'll, I'll go first if you want, I'll tell you my, uh, my take on it. Yeah, I'd love to know. What what have you learned, Ilya? All right. There is no one way to do the creative part of this business. There's there's no one way. There are some best practices for the technical part, which many people follow and a few people ignore. What else I've learned is that the closer you are to the producer and the director as a DP, the more you work. (laughs) Yeah, well, that that just stands to reason. Uh, DPs have to muddle their way through relationships where the director might be incredibly competent when it comes to camera or might not. And better DPs can work with both types of directors. Uh, And then as for the AI question, I wrote back to him, the AI DP is fast. They don't need to tweak. They can make four variations slash looks in the same space, with the same tools. And you may not like any of them, but you didn't have to wait long. 
So. Oh, so the AI is like uh, the big blue to, say, Chivo Gary Kasparov, you know, so we've got whoever it is. Robert Richardson is Gary Kasparov and we got big blue and we tell big blue light this like Robert Richardson and like bleep blorp. It just does it instantly. That's right. It, it's really, really fast. It may not necessarily be something that you like, but it will be fast. That's what it okay. is. So you wrote down your answers, but you just hit me with this right before we started. I did. So, so you, you just... haven't had anywhere near the preparation time that I have. Yet. I've had no preparation time, but I think I can do this really well. So uh, go ahead and hit me because okay. I think about this as you do. We both think about this all the time. We're constantly interviewing people. Yeah. So the first part was what's uh, the commonality uh, or what insights have we learned or is it just uh, reinf- uh, or have we learned nothing and just reinforced uh, an opinion that you already had? What's the commonality? There is no commonality. Like when we started, I would always start with a question. When you're reading a script, do you see it in lighting or composition? And that was something that was inspired by something my friend and cinematographer, and I think our third guest, uh, Fraser Bradshaw, had told me. And I actually brought that up in his interview. And he's like, if that's what you took away from me saying that, you got me wrong. <laughs> and I still thought it was a worthwhile question. And eventually I retired it because I realized that there's any number of ways that people start by looking at it. But actually, almost everyone said the same thing when I asked that question, which was when I read the script, I just read the script. I just want to absorb the story and I want to get the story. And I think that where images start in their imaginations is a little more complex than do you see it in lighting or do you see it in composition? Yeah, we get a a lot of technical people on here but you know we always do kind of like a pre-interview prep when we talk to people and I always say we're not really here to talk about tech and with very few exceptions almost all of them are like oh thank god like I don't want to talk tech and it's not because they don't want to get into the weeds of explaining coding and shit it's because that's not what they do. You don't hire a cinematographer because they know how to code or because they can whip up the most correct LUT for whatever. You hire them for their eye. You hire them for their sense of judgment. They're people who are thinking in pictures. They're thinking creatively. So that, that's my answer to the first question. Great. Okay. What's the next question? If uh, It's the AI part. You know, if chat, GPT, and mid-journey combined forces to birth the perfect cinematographer, what would that look like? Well, okay, so the thing about AI and when I talk to people about AI who are afraid that AI is encroaching on real artists and to a degree, I'm sure it's gonna, but AI is only derivative and the people who we get on the show are usually here because they did something original. So although I feel like you could feed into an algorithm, light it like Robert Richardson, you wouldn't create Robert Richardson unless he already existed. You couldn't create that look with AI. AI doesn't create the look. AI goes through everything that whoever it is, name a DP, Russell Carpenter, uh, Rachel Morrison. It's going to go through their work. It's going to select stuff that, that has a look. But And actually, I feel like this almost goes back into the first question too, which is that like a lot of DPs, there are DPs who have a distinctive style, but even those people usually are like, They don't want to be pigeonholed. They don't want to be told this is what your stuff looks like because they want to jump around from genre to genre. They want to make a romance and a comedy and a horror movie and a spy thriller. Correct me if I'm wrong. Almost everyone that we've talked to, what they want to do is they want to have a lot of different experiences, right? 
Like they want to seems they like want to bring yeah. their eye to different things. And there's something kind of cool about taking someone who made a, a costume drama and say, okay, now we're going to go, you know, make a zombie film with you. So that doesn't really answer the AI question, but uh, I think it would be more of a, you know, stable diffusion slash mid journey thing, creating a DP than uh, chat GPT. Cause uh, their job isn't to write words. Yeah, that's fair. That's, that's fair. Hey, before we move on to the interview, I just want to do a quick gear change here because I, I think I mentioned before we were using this uh, service called Chartable, which gives us some sort of understanding mm. of our metrics, meaning how many people are listening to the podcast in different parts of the world, how many people are downloading. And something interesting happened. We, oh, no. uh, we no, interesting and not a bad way. We moved our primary category on Apple Podcasts because they, they now have a, a subcategory that fits better for where we were rather than just film and TV. Film and TV is a very broad general category. We were in there with anyone who discusses anything about film and TV, all kinds of things. And uh, they have now a subcategory called film interviews. After switching ourselves to film interviews, we started appearing much, much higher, especially internationally. And I just want to give a quick shout out to some of the international places where we were in the top 10 for podcast downloads uh, last week, including places like Austria, where we're actually number one at one point. Brazil, we were number four. Bulgaria, number one. Cambodia, three. France, number nine. Uh, Great Britain, we just missed the top 10. We were number 12. Mexico, number 9. Denmark, 4. Greece, 9. India, 3. Netherlands, number 1. Sweden, Sweden, number 11. Switzerland, 12. Finland, 2. New Zealand, again, 13. Uh, Vietnam, 8. Turkey, 3. Estonia, number 1. Belgium, number 3. Italy, number 10. Uh, Iceland, number 4. Peru, number one, Albania, number two, Pakistan, number eight, Portugal, number three, Germany, number four. I'm very proud of that one. I think that one's That's great. A lot, lot of great cinematographers in Germany. And actually no surprises here at all, actually possibly because the country that may be the most gung-ho about cinematography, Poland, number one. We, re- we hit number one really? in Poland. Yeah, I know. I thought it was, oh, wow. uh, that was pretty awesome. And That's you know, awesome. what I think is also super cool is right at this basically same time, someone reached out to me from Sweden, a listener, and mm. we've had a really nice Facebook conversation uh, ever yeah. since then. So I, uh, I want to give a quick shout out to that person right now. And uh, <laughs> I, I am not exactly sure if I'm going to say his full name correctly here because it's long, uh, but it's Christian uh. Didrik Jeremek Locke. And that last part's hyphenated. So, uh, Christian, uh, thanks so much for reaching out. It's really been been fun chatting with you on on Facebook. And, and of course, Christian, sorry, Americans cannot pronounce yeah, you know, Scandinavian well, you know, names. Yeah, I, I'm, we're trying our best. So, Ben, should we get to the uh, interview with the team from Fancy Dance? Is the movie about fancy dancing? Okay. Well, first of all, I watched Fancy Dance not knowing a goddamn thing about it. And it immediately sucked me in. And it, and it did, I think, all the best things that you want from a Sundance movie in that it's a personal story, but it's very, very compelling. All I can say is check it out. So here we go. Here is Fancy Dance. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we're here uh, covering Sundance 2023, or as I like to think of it, the distant future with Erica Tremblay and Carolina Costa, the director and DP respectively of Fancy Dance, an amazing film that I I hope uh, lots of people get out to see. Congratulations on your premiere at the Eccles, correct? Yep, we premiered at Eccles. I'm very glad that the premiere is over. I'll just put it that way. I was very nervous nervous going into it, but now I'm on the other side and feeling good. I imagine that must be stressful, but uh, like, what was the audience response to it? 
you know, there's really nothing like being in a room of 1200 people and having them laughing, having them gasping, having them in certain instances, there were people squealing when like there was like tension built up. And so it was truly the experience of a lifetime to have something that you've poured yourself into over so many years. And Mm. you've just been in a dark room all alone. (laughs) Less than 20 people have seen it. And you go from that to like 1200 people seeing it all in one fell swoop. And so I haven't ever experienced anything like it before. Uh, I guess I hope to again. (laughs) (laughs) Well, congratulations. I think you're going to experience a lot of people seeing this movie. Real quick, and I'm sure that you're tired of of doing this, but like give us the the elevator pitch just so our audience can kind of get a sense of what it's about. Sure. Fancy Dance follows a Native American woman who hustles to get by on her reservation in Oklahoma. Um, When her sister goes missing, she's left as the unlikely caretaker to her 13-year-old niece. When CPS removes Roki from the house, uh, deeming Jax not a good caretaker, Jax kidnaps Roki back and the two of mm. them head out on the road to go to a powwow in the hopes of finding um, their sister slash mom. I, I, there's no way I could have encapsulated it that well. Thank you so much. So let's talk about the two of you, how you came to work on the project together and uh, how you went about developing the look. I'd say the look is kind of melancholic. I, I don't know exactly how to describe it. It's like beautiful, but kind of desaturated. And uh, I don't know, it's very naturalistic. But tell me what your thoughts were in terms of developing the look of the film. Well, I'll tell you how Carolina and I came to like connect. And then I'll let Carolina take the, the visual question. But I have just been such a fan of Carolina's work. And she was on all of these lists and, and her name kept popping up. And so I reached out to my team and I was like, please, mm. please, please get me a meeting. <laughs> like, nice. Whatever she needs, I want to work with her. So really, Carolina was always on the top of my list. And then I remember the first Zoom meeting we had, she had read the script. And I remember getting off of the the call and messaging my team and being like, it's her. Let's just do it. How do we get her on board? So, oh, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, and I'm very glad that she came on this journey. So. I just want to compliment that he did go on dates with lots of other DPs after that, but okay. It's true. Uh. <laughs> it's true because um, she was the first person in like the list. Right. And so you can't just cancel. <laughs> and so I like would sit through these meetings and then it took actually a while to get back to Carolina. And she was like, oh, I didn't think it was going to be me. And I was like, it was always going to be you. No offense to the other amazing DPs that we got. I'm also not, and Carolina can attest to this, I'm not a technical director in the sense of um, understanding what all the lighting does, understanding what all the the lenses do. And so I knew I needed someone who was a lot smarter than me in that regard, but that would also, I would be able to be like, this is the feeling that I want. This is the distance I want from the characters. This is, And then I would be able to tell her and that we could like creatively come up with an answer and then she would be able to technically like execute it beautifully. So yeah, it's kind of a mixture of all those things. Carolina, do you want to talk about the visual construction of the film? Yeah, I just want to say that that is not true. That Erica humbles herself and just being like, I don't know anything. That is not true. One of the most talented filmmaker I ever worked with. Oh, wow. I read the script and basically really fell in love. and was just bawling and crying and just really wanted to be part of this. It was special from the page. And when you have all those feelings reading the pages and a lot of images come to your mind, that's a good enough reason to do a movie and want to be part of the team uh, behind it, right? And I think also the fact that 
I just hadn't seen these characters being portrayed on the big screen. And I Agreed. think that's um, really important. Uh, and that those are the things I navigate to. I think for me and Erica, we wanted, yes, a naturalistic, I guess, approach to it. I think it was important to create a safe space for the actors and, and for Erica. And I think, I know it sounds like separate from the actual technicalities of, of shooting something, but it, it's all the same for me, right? So with that in mind, when we're lighting, uh, a lot of the times we wouldn't have any lights actually inside the house. There'd be, you know, outside and it'll be controlling daylight that was coming through. Everything was kind of outside in the sense that these people could leave the story. Erica could work with the actors. You know, we're like in a, in a small location with like various characters, right? And the camera's dancing with the actors. So the naturalistic approach also comes from the fact that, you know, how do we have the space to navigate the camera and the actors and make it like safe, right? Mm -hmm. Less people uh, around it. And I think our first meeting, because uh, of all this like talks that we've been having around Sundance and stuff, I kind of revealed our first meeting, Erica, and you know, the, like the lookbook that I had made with these images. I remember like the philosophy behind it was to find beauty in everyday life. And I think mm. kind of have that stuck with that in our hearts as we're making this movie, because there are a lot of darker parts of the story, right? And the reality what this uh, young women are living but also not to like pray into, you know, the, the sadness and, and the darkness of the world to also find the beauty in their relationship and, you know, their, what they're aspiring to in their lives. You said that you had a lookbook and I'm always interested to hear because uh, everyone does it differently. How do you organize a lookbook? What do you put into it? Do you present it to Erica or did you work on it together to show to producers or how do you use it on the shoot? Like what's the utility for you of, of the lookbook and how do you make it? Yeah, this first lookbook, it's truly to see if I might be the right fit for Erica. So these are the things that came to my mind when I read the script. I want to hear your ideas, but this is what I came up with. This is what I'm bringing to the table. Does it make sense that I'm your partner, right? Mm. That's kind of just like a conversation started. Then from then on, like absolutely everything we make is together, the shot list, the mood boards, everything has to come from like the, you know, the margin of these two minds, right? And then during the shoot, I make these Bibles that basically will have like all the references that me and Erica discussed, our shot list, and any kind of helpful information for the audio departments. Awesome. Awesome. And Erica, could you talk a little bit? I, mean, I, I know that we're here to talk about cinematography, but I'm just curious. Carolina said it is a story where I've never seen these characters necessarily portrayed this way. And I really appreciated that as an audience member in that, like, I'm getting into their culture and I'm, I'm steeped in their culture. But their story is it's kind of a weird buddy story of, you know, this aunt and this niece who are sort of on the lamb and they're kind of petty grifters, but the story isn't about their grift, but I feel like that is something that also kind of plays into it. Can you talk a little bit about like representing these kinds of characters in a movie like this as the heroes of the story? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in and around my community. I'm from the Seneca Cuga Nation. I grew up in Oklahoma and Southwest Missouri, and I just know these characters so through and through. Like Jax is everyone's auntie. I had so many indigenous folks that were there at Eccles at our premiere and they came up and they were like, oh my God, that's my aunt. Really? Me. And like, so we really recognize these characters. There's kind of a, uh, when you're dealing with a lot of harsh things around you, there's a tendency to use humor as a way to kind of cope. 
And there's also a tendency to maybe hold things in and push things down a little so that you you appear to be somewhat abrasive maybe to the world outside. But I think we see Jax as being someone who's contained, but who has multitudes of love and generosity for her for her intimate relationships. And in this film, ideally with her niece, Roki. It was such a dream working with Lily Gladstone and, and Isabel, two incredible indigenous talents. And so bringing them to life with that talent, with Carolina behind the camera and with the rest of our, with our team, it wasn't necessarily the challenge. The challenge was finding someone to write us a check to bring them to life. <laughs> well, um, there are a lot of indigenous uh, characters that have yet to be seen on the screen that exist in scripts and in stories and in the minds of many indigenous talented directors. And so, you know, for us, the challenge was just convincing financiers that people would care about a queer indigenous woman and her niece. And luckily for us, you know, we screened at Beckles to a sold out theater and we've been getting like a ton of really great response. So I just hope that this is an opportunity for us to hopefully have these gatekeepers writing more checks. <laughs> hopefully, yeah. Now, in terms of the, the Jax character, I feel like the movie is mostly told through her point of view, mostly. How did you use that perspective to make the lens selections? And really, the color palette was one of the first things that kind of struck me about the, the movie. Like, it really has a very specific palette, and it doesn't feel overly graded to the point where it, uh, sometimes I'll say that they're overcooked. It doesn't feel that way at all. It feels very natural to the story. But, like, where did the ideas for, like, the palette and the lensing and, the you know, the camera movement? or lack of camera movement that you chose for each scene? Like, what were kind of the guiding principles? And that's why I'm asking about the character. Was it through the character or was it through something else? I know that very early on, we had a lot of conversations around the natural elements of Oklahoma in summer. And we really mm -hmm. wanted the film to feel specific to that topography. It's very hot. It's very humid. Sometimes that muggy air can pull the color out of the sky and the trees. Huh. We wanted to express that kind of like feeling of being weighed down. And I know that we had a lot of conversations around moonlight. We wanted the natural elements to be like, we chose very specifically when the moon was lighting a room. That was when the missing sister, Towie, was present. Mm. And we wanted her to be- Now I gotta go watch it again. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you'll notice that in our night scenes, when you have the lighting, lighting Jax or Roki versus the moonlight, we were very- we were thinking about the natural world and how that was a part of the film's character and then also even bringing in the natural world as stand-ins for, for characters like Taui. Interesting, interesting. And I think there's things that we discovered as well, like, for example, you know, like talking about the moonlight and I think the color blue for us was like very important. And it's just kind of, it's something that developed, right? Also with Charlotte, our production designer, it's just something that it started because I think in a lot of movies, usually the language is cold, blue, is in the past, it's bad, right? And then the warm is nice and cozy. And usually that's that's what it represents. And in our case, it's kind of the opposite. I think we kind of started discovering because also we wanted the color blue to show up when she's with Sapphire. And that for us meant safe, right? Oh. The blue. And we took that blue into the porch of the outside of the house. And then obviously we have the scene of the moonlight as Erica explained now. So I think there's the natural elements of the place absolutely dictated the amount of saturation, you know, uh, that exists in our color. 
We also had this amazing colorist, Raphael, which I think has added so much life to mm. the movie. And yeah, I think there was just a lot of conversations behind all those choices. Um, Am I reaching because when the younger girl uh, gets her first period, she says, I, I'm going to butcher it, but it's like I had my moon. Were you using the moon kind of throughout it symbolically? Like, was that part of the symbolism with the mother? Oh, yes. Uh, the way that you say that you get your period in the language is that grandmother just visited. And when we say grandmother, we're referring to the moon. We call the moon grandmother. And so when we say it in English, we often say, you know, I, I got my moon. And you hear it all the time that that's how you you reference getting your period. And so absolutely, we knew that the moon is a representation of matrilineal kinship. The oh. moon is a rep is representation of the Haudenosaunee matriarchy. And really what we were trying to do is show a modern day expression of how that matrilineal kinship is still so vital to our communities, our relationships and our safety. And so we knew we wanted beautiful moonlight saturating the two of them as she was getting her first period and that then the sun would be taking over the moon when we were doing the ceremony scene, her coming of age ceremony scene. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, we had a lot of discussions. And again, her grandmother, the moon, is also representation of all the matrilineal lineage that came before. So that was a natural jump for us to say, okay, the moon is also Taui, right? Like the moon is the grandmother, the moon is the next grandmother, and the moon is also her mother. Oh, wow. So that representation of the moon and all of her ancestors that came before, we wanted them present in certain scenes. And we were very, um, many conversations had around what the moon would feel like, what it would look like, when it would be present. And uh, yeah. It's just a brilliant piece because it brings me into kind of the, again, in a very subtle way into the culture that you're showing us. But on top of that, there's kind of a crime story going on in this entire movie. So you sort of have, I don't want to say it's two genres, but you kind of have a character story that's very deep, very personal. And then at the same time, you have sort of an A to B to C kind of a crime story going on. How do you go about balancing those elements visually and story-wise? Yeah, so we knew very early on when Michiana Elise, my co-writer, and I were developing the project, what Michiana and I wanted, we wanted this to be a reflection of the truth. And to be an Indigenous person in the United States today means that you are dealing with systemic issues in your community, whether it be forced removal of kids with the foster care and CPS, whether it be people missing. But then you also, so you're dealing with that, but you also have strong family units, laughter, joy, dancing. And so we couldn't kind of encompass what it means to be a modern Native American without including all of those things. Yeah, yeah. Crossing genres in a way. On that, I just wanted to say too that for the strip club scenes, mm. Carolina and I spent a lot of time watching other films with strip club scenes in them, thinking about how we would shoot the dancers and shoot that world so that it, we weren't in any way, um, like we're always on eye level with the dancers. Mm. We, don't, we, we don't look at their bodies really through a voyeuristic, lens and we kind of approached all of our scenes that way like how can we protect the women in this scene how can we protect them from a prying voyeuristic camera whether that's the poverty porn that you often see whether that's violence bodies blood things that we often see of women you know we we, we really 
cared a lot about Roki and Jax and, and the people in their lives. And we wanted to take care of them in our visual. Mm. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. As a dude, I feel like I would like to understand more about that, about when the two of you as women are putting together the story that's about women, but also deals with the exploitation of women to a degree. Uh, were there other cliches or other uh, tropes that I would maybe be completely blind to that you could identify and say, we're not going to do that in our film? Eric, I think the scene where she finds the DVD and she finds all the stripper clothing. We talked a lot about that, right? Yeah. That scene is such a, when I watch that scene, I get, um, it takes a lot for me to be proud of myself as a type A personality Capricorn. Um, yeah. But, you know, when that scene comes on and that was a scene early on, really, that's the scene where we defined the moonlight. Um, that was the oh. scene that we shot first and Towie is so present there. and. And yeah, I had very specific thoughts around how I wanted Roki's discovery of her mother's stripper clothes to bring humanity not only to Towie and her job and how she's just doing what she needs to do to make ends meet. Being a stripper does not mean she's a bad mother. And in fact, I would say it means that she's doing what she can to provide for her family. And how can we be more loving than that? And so the visual, you know, just those little shoes when she tries the shoes on and yeah. she's walking across the carpet, these things that she's discovering and finding and the sexuality of her mother and the sexuality of her aunt and how that is framing her perspective of the world and framing her perspective of herself. You know, there's a lot going on there, not only from a character perspective without any words spoken, but a lot going on there technically with how we lit the scene, how the camera moves with her, the choices of, of angles. And um, once we had that as an anchor in a corner, so I mean, we used some of that same visual language again and again and again, because it, it felt so right in the moment. All right, well, uh, we're about out of time. I wish I could talk to you both more. Uh, congratulations again on your premiere at Sundance. I personally thought the movie was amazing. I hope more people see it. I'm sure it's gonna get a, a big release now, but thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so that was Fancy Dance. Check it out. I hope that it's available in a movie theater or streaming service near you. So, Ilya, who do we have next? Up next is the creative team from King Cole, also Sundance movie. And I have a great conversation with the director, Elaine Sheldon, and also the cinematographer, Curran Sheldon. And here we go. I'm joined now by Elaine Sheldon and Curran Sheldon, the director and cinematographer for the new movie King Cole, which just had its premiere at the 2023 Sundance Film Festival. Welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So I usually like to ask people to uh, describe a little bit uh, their movie because, uh, especially at Sundance, most people who are listening to this haven't had a chance to see it. How would you describe King Cole? We would describe King Cole as part documentary, part fable that explores the culture of coal in Appalachia while also dreaming and imagining into a future without a king. Gotcha. There are not too many movies that would describe themselves as part documentary, part fable. It seems to me like you've got a contradiction there. How do you go about squaring documentary from fiction, from narrative? Well, a couple ways. We're trying to tell a new story about the region. And in the process of telling that story, we need new ways of telling it. And the reason that's needed is for so long, Appalachia has been seen as being sort of our coal, coal field. And 
for the people that's become part of their identity, part of their culture in a way that at this point doesn't reflect actual reality today. So we're already playing with myths in reality. The myth of King Cole, the myth of Cole being this huge provider still hasn't been true for a long time for the region. It's been declining for a long time. And so the fact is that the line between myth and fact is already blurring there. And so in order to get to the truth of what it feels like to grieve and to approach change, we actually had to play with myths and new myths and creating those through storytelling and through cinematic tools. So we actually see it as a more honest way of approaching a story that is unseen. You know, you can see the cold culture playing out and you see it at the football games, you see it at the pageants, you see all these things. But what's happening internally is lesser seen and lesser heard. And so that's where the personal storytelling came in. That's where these magical realism elements came in to really heighten what it feels like to be in this place and to create more of an experience than a film necessarily. Well, well, mission accomplished. You you definitely did, and it, it's a beautiful movie. And I really I really enjoyed the mood piece that that it is. Uh, can you talk a little bit, and uh, maybe Cullen, if this is appropriate for you to jump in here too, your personal histories with with Appalachia, your personal histories with the space. Tell me your story. How, how do you come to this? Corinne, you yeah. want to start? Sure. Yeah. So I was raised in Appalachia. I actually moved there when I was about five years old. So. I'm from West Virginia, from the region, and just sort of grew up around a lot of the things that we filmed. But it was really when I met Elaine and we started working together, got married, and has worked together for the last 10 years where, where we really, um, you know, she cares so much about the region. She has such a long history in the region, which she'll talk about. But that's really when we really started trying to, you know, tell Appalachia's story in, in a new way. And I think this is sort of a culmination of 10 years of her work and 10 years of our collaboration. Yeah, my family's been there. I, I've counted once, it's either eight or nine. I'm either the eighth or ninth generation. And I have a, a struggle figuring out which Irish or Scottish town each side came from. So we've been there a long time. And before they were miners, they were loggers. And before they were loggers, they were farmers. And they've always lived, my family's always lived close to their environment and their land and have had to make sacrifices to their own sort of culture and ways of being in order to make a living. And to this day, continue to fight to stay there. And so they taught me to fight and they taught me to care about the place. And I was a kid like any other kid that grew up in the coal fields that looked around me and really didn't see much um, of opportunity and wanted to leave. But it was upon leaving and living in Boston that I realized how special that place was and how much it actually left an imprint on me. And I just, at that point, wanted to start sharing the stories of resilience and the stories of hope and the stories that sort of, you know, that don't replace just negative images with positive images, because that's that's inauthentic as well, but actually complicate our idea of place and make it more universal. I mean, Appalachia is seen as this sort of like American other that's depraved in some way and all this, but it's just in some ways a bellwether of America. I mean, what happens there usually ends up happening in other parts of the U.S., whether it's mechanization and um, depopulation and food sources. I mean, we've seen a lot of early labor things happen in Appalachia that have been rippled into the country. So I'm very passionate about the place because quite frankly, I've been watching it die over my 35 years of life. And it's very painful to see such a beautiful place be forgotten. It is an incredibly beautiful place. And I got to say that the work that you do in this movie really showcases it. There are majestic, beautiful vistas, like incredible natural scenery. And it's a 
incredible juxtaposition against the mining process and the mining operations, which are dark and scary and brutal. But what really struck me about your movie, and I keep wanting to say the word documentary, but I know it seems partially documentary and partially not. And I did really enjoy this because it feels to me like you have so much authenticity in the parts that are not the documentary and in the part that is like, you know, is, is your, your actors and, and your cast. But you really do a great job of portraying this insular community. And it's not just one community, though. It, like, I get the feeling it's this entire region. It's it's all of these spaces across, stretching across states. But, like, I was totally unaware of, like, the coal beauty pageants and, like, you know, the coal run. The coal run for me was kind of, like, mind-blowing. It's like, and, and it feels like something out of India with, like, the Festival of Colors where people are throwing. Like, it, like can you talk a little yeah. bit about just, like, the culture of the area and how you brought that all into the movie, especially for audiences that they're not used to this. They haven't seen this before. Yeah. Well, I grew up doing a lot of these coal rituals. Um, my uh, dad was a miner and he's actually going to see the film today. Very excited. And when I left, I realized like all those things we did were a little odd. <laughs> and uh, upon revisiting and coming back home to West Virginia, was just curious if they still went on because obviously the industry has declined so much since my childhood and was really delighted to find kind of like new croppings of things, right? So the pageant had been going on for many decades, but the coal run 5K is actually like a new thing that's come about in the past less than 10 years. And so it's just ways that people are trying to figure out what makes their town unique, what culturally thing can they attract people. In. And I think it's an interesting thing that we use coal, which is seen as a very destructive, dirty thing as a thing, as a way to attract people. So there's a, there's a very interesting juxtaposition there. But, you know, in terms of the fiction and nonfiction, you know, there's no scripting in this film. So the two girls that you see in these scenes, Lainey and Gabby, um, they're girls that live in West Virginia. You know, they're not actors. They we found them. My co-producer, Molly Bourne, found them at local dance studios. And we chose them because they were great on screen. They could be kids without us interfering. And they both came from coal families. And so we wanted them to have those tethers and connections so that when we were taking them to things like a coal memorial or whatever, they would get what we were doing. You know, we didn't want anyone acting in those scenes, but they still would be kids and they still would surprise us and they still would say things that we were unexpected. Whereas all the things like in the tattoo shop, you know, those are just, that's just a real conversation with real people. That's, that's not scripted. So yeah. And the final scene, I think is one of the most interesting ways to look at how this film's hybrid is, you know, we held a memorial for King Cole. And the reason that felt relevant and important is the whole film documents rituals and traditions. And we wanted to create an event that actually felt like it could happen, right? Like after you've seen the pageants and you've seen all these things, you're thinking like, oh, they actually could do this because they do all these other surreal things like throw coal dust on each other at 5K. So we held a memorial and we invited, I don't know, 80 people. And we had no clue what they were going to say. We prepped all of them about sort of what the film was, what the meaning of the scene was. We just asked them to bring words from their heart. And people were very moved and took it very seriously and carried a casket to the top of the hill and stayed afterwards and ate and played music. And it was a whole thing that you don't even see in the film because it really felt cathartic for people. And that's when I think I learned a power of cinema that I wasn't even aware of before, where it's sort of participatory in this way where the people that show up actually are creating it, co-creating it with you. And I mean, all the credit really goes to Curran, who's an incredible director of photography and incredible team leader who we from the beginning, you know, our producer, Diane Becker, was like, I don't know, I think we should do takes like we should do things twice. And Kurt and I don't work like that. So if we miss things, it's like too bad. You're right. 
but they didn't miss a thing. And this is a two hour event and the coverage and quality of the image with the thunder and everything. It was just like King Cole himself had like blessed this proceeding to happen because it was unbelievably beautiful and captured so intimately. So it was a really hard scene though. I mean, it took a major crew. Everything else, Karen and I shot by ourselves, mostly with our co-producer or um, sound person, Billy, co-producer Molly or Claire, our associate producer. So it's never more than a two or three person ground until that big shoot day. So it was a lot of fun. It's an earnest movie uh, fable. There's nothing about this that isn't reverent to the place. Can you talk about taking that reverence and turning it into images? I'm, I'm sure that is like very much the intention going into this and it's beautifully done. But can you talk a little bit about the intention of the visuals and how you wanted to portray this movie on screen? For sure. Yeah, I think uh, Lane and I talked a lot about sort of how the region has been portrayed in the past, right? It's and even when you look at fiction films, uh, they're set in Appalachia, you know, they're always sort of set in the dead of winter when everything's brown and everything's kind of gloomy. And that's not the Appalachia that we know or grew up with. You know, I, I grew up in North Central West Virginia, which is a little bit more farmland, a little bit more dominated by natural gas than coal, even though coal is still um, a part of that region. But it's, you know, it's my childhood was, you know, running through the woods and through the forest and, you know, catching salamanders in the creeks. So, you know, there's this part of Appalachia that's um, still wild and beautiful that we really wanted to make sure we captured on screen while still sort of telling the truth of kind of what the region's struggles are and, and hoping for a better way forward. I think throughout all of our work in the last 10 years in the region, you know, obviously Elaine um, being so passionate about the region sort of leads this is we don't shy away from what is true and tough and sometimes difficult to look at. But we also want to show that that's not all there is, you know, like even when we did two films on the opioid crisis, it was about people who are trying to help people who are trying to move the region and the area past that. And so for, distinctly for this film, you know, we, we just wanted to show that what you usually see, right, just destruction of coal mining or timber or the opioid crisis or, you know, obviously the, if not the uh, poorest state in the country, it's always first or second. So, you know, there's obviously a lot of um, images of poverty that come out. And, while that stuff is is there and it's true and it's factual and we show that in all of our work, there's also this beautiful side in this community and this togetherness that's just not very often shown on screen. And so we really wanted to approach, you know, to show the coal culture, but also show this other beautiful side, you know, and, and shoot it in such a way that people would be transported there and and they would see the region for, you know, how we see it. You know, we we did three decades of location scouting, right? And that's that's sort of the beauty of doing work in your region. It's like, you know, like, oh, we need the, that shot. Like, we know where that is. You know, we know exactly which trail to walk down and where we that vista will be. what time of day the light will be there. Yep. And so it's, it's just, you know, having that intimate knowledge is, gave us the opportunity to sort of create the visuals that we did. And we just, you know, we just constantly showed up every morning to do that. If we didn't capture it one morning, we'd come out the next. So, you know, it's just, just being dedicated to the place and being dedicated to the craft and then therefore being dedicated to the film, um, and Elaine's vision. And I think like one of the big cinematography things is lighting, right? Like we wanted that natural lighting, we, we, not, not shooting everything a golden hour, but knowing when to use that. Knowing, like watching the earth breathe, watching this fog rise, you know, the patient lens that Curran brought to this. Also, Curran, you know, I, from the early days, I told him to look for textures, right? So like the bison body as it moves past the camera, the moss itself, the coal burning, the water, like all those textures. We wanted it to feel like a visceral experience where like you get a sense of the, I mean, coal was part of the earth. We don't think about that, right? We think of nature as separate from coal, but coal came from the earth. And it was the brother and sister of trees and forests. And we have now, 
used it to um, sort of destroy a lot of landscapes. But at one time, it was just sitting in the ground next to the sandstone, limestone, and all the other beautiful things we see underground. And so we wanted to sort of put coal back into its kingdom in that way where it's, it is more of a brother and sister among the other natural elements and not the king. And then the king is felt in the breath art and the score that's very like, you know, it's percussive score. It's the beating of the king's drum. But it was a recentering of images that would show texture and light and not just beautiful, like have a little bit of purpose for the story. You know, actually, we, we cheated one time, I will admit. We bought a fog machine and we actually were shooting a uh, jazz band in the forest. It didn't make it in the scene or in the film, excuse me. And we filled the forest, filled it with fog, and we had the jazz band coming through the fog. They were like the ghosts of King Cole. Anyway, it was this whole thing. It didn't make it in the film. But afterwards, you know, we had filled up this whole holler full of fog. I mean, this fog machine was pumping for hours. And so the girls were just catching fireflies. And there comes the scene where they're catching fireflies, which is the impetus for the burial rituals to begin. And they're walking towards this big fog white wall. I mean, that was just a happy accident. And I would say a lot of this film came from Kern and I going in. We made storyboards. We'd look at things. We'd say like, okay, we want to see Lainey move through the crowd this way. But Kern honestly found the best moments after the things that we planned to shoot. So he's the type of DP that I'm like always being like, wrap it up, wrap it up, because he'll shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot and shoot. And honestly, when I'm telling him to wrap it up, what I'm doing is interrupting the best thing he's getting usually because it's always the thing that happened after the thing we planned that was the most natural and the most interesting. And so that is where I think the intimacy and the realness came in, even in the moments that we were sort of orchestrating is it's when Curran would stick around a bit longer, even with Lainey by the fire, and the breath at the final end, that's, that's just Curran sticking around until everyone else is gone. So yeah, it would taught me a lot about orchestration and its limits. And also it taught us like the value of allowing things to just happen as they would and not trying to control them. Let's shift gears just a little bit. You guys are a married couple. And I don't know if you were both doing the careers that you were doing at the time that you met or or how this may have evolved. But a lot of people can't who are married can't work together. How do you guys cross that bridge? How do you guys uh, work together, especially in something that might be long or feel tedious or have pressure and that sort of thing? How, how is the director-DP relationship here when the director-DP relationship is also, you know, a husband and wife? I think it starts with respect. I think we both just really respect what each other bring. I've seen other directors work with Curran and not give him that same respect. And I'm very sensitive to allowing him the space to find the images and not over directing in that way, because I know that he'll come out with something beautiful if he's given the freedom and time and space to do so. So I try to give him that respect and he gives me the respect to let my crazy, do my crazy ideas. Don't discourage me, um, even if he knows they may not work out because he knows I need to see them through. And so I, I'm like probably too serious of a person. Curran's a very fun person. So we balance each other in that way. I think we make a good team because we are pretty different as human beings, but we really respect who each other are and the personalities that we bring to the table. Curran's very funny. Like he likes to tell jokes and likes to be a kid kind of. So he was great with the girls, like, you know, playing games with them in between shooting and while I was being all stressed and serious about something probably unimportant. So I think that we really balance each other and a working relationship for me, and I'll let Curran talk, has always been Curran reminding me to remember to take time to not work, right? Because the not working, the hiking, the camping, all the things you do that takes your brain away from writing a script or whatever that you're stressing over really helps make the story better, right? It gives you the time and space to reflect. So he's always been able to force me into relaxing, which I think has always made my work better. 
Yeah, I would just add that I think a lot of married couples, at least in the industry, right, they, they tend to do similar roles, it seems, right? Like they co-direct, they co-produce. And while Elaine and I do that sometimes, when we work on projects, it's very clear that she's the director on this project and I'm the director on that project or, or vice versa. And so, you know, we, we kind of have clear delineation where I will, you know, I can, I can push and say, no, I think this idea that I came up with is better than your original idea, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, if Elaine makes that final decision, then, you know, I'm okay with it, right? Because it's her vision and her story. And so I always see, you know, in King Cole and, and some of her other work with, that she's directed is I'm there to support her in every way that I can and do the, the best job that I can to help her get her vision on screen. I always use the analogy of, you know, sports, not everybody can be the Tom Brady, right? Sometimes you got to be the Gronkowski or, you know, a wide receiver, a tight end, right? And they're still very valuable members of the team, but, you know, you're not always the the top dog. So, you know, I think, I think we work well because we realize that when we're working together that, you know, there's, you know, we, we allow each other to be the leader in whatever project that we're working on and not always, you know, butting heads and trying to figure out, you know, who, who's on top. So I think that clear delineation really helps. Yeah. And when I, when Kern's directing and I'm, helping shoot or sound or co-produce, he brings me along because he finds me more disarming than him, you know, himself, right? And so I, that's sort of my support role for Curran when he's directing things is to be the disarming, like gentle one to like get people to open up, which I love playing that. That's nice. Like I don't always get to do that as a director. Sometimes I have too much in my head. So we just try to support one another. That's great. Well, is there an official website for the movie? If people want to track down uh, the movie outside of Sundance, is is there some place they can find you either on social media or an official website yeah, or something like that? Yeah, we have an Instagram. It's just King Cole Film. We will have a website eventually. And um, on that Instagram, there's a link that you can sign up for our newsletter, which will keep you updated on every new festival screening, if we get distribution, all those great things that we hope are coming down the pipeline. That's great. Do you have more festivals lined up after this or, or a distribution plan of some sort? If someone doesn't swoop in here and put a big contract in front of you and say, we want to take this away from you and show it to a million people. Yeah, well, I think whoever swoops in, if we're lucky enough for that to happen, will have to support a festival run because I think this film needs to be seen in spaces with people in, in those spaces. And I think that anybody who's seen it at our premiere, especially at the Egyptian, would agree with that. It's a cinematic experience that needs to be in that theater. Yeah, I don't know. We we are very lucky to be have we have two producers on our film, Shane Boris and Diane Becker, who both just were nominated for the Oscar for Devalny and Fire of Love. So that certainly helps our chances of getting someone to pick this film up and they will help guide us through that process. So we're open and we hope people can see it soon. Elaine and Curran, Sheldon, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. It was really a lot of fun to, to chat with you for a few minutes. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. All right. So that was the team behind King Cole. Definitely uh, seek it out if it sounded interesting to you. And I can speak with confidence that uh, it's probably not like anything you've seen before either. So uh, a lot of fun. Much like yeah. much like you log. Yes. Log. Oh, and, you know, and sure. I was reading all those ratings from overseas for uh, that was the week actually of Casper Kelly and Yule log. So a lot of people listen to that episode. Clearly, you know, it's weird because we've been doing this for a long time and I don't get starstruck, but talking to Casper Kelly was, I was kind of nervous. I was excited to talk to the guy who made Too Many Cooks, something I've seen probably dozens of times. You know what I did not realize at the time we were speaking is that he was very, very involved in your pretty faces going to hell. 
Like, uh, and I, oh, he, he created it. Yeah. I didn't, didn't I did not realize that. And we didn't bring it up. And now I'm like kicking myself. It's like, I would have loved to have talked to him about that because that's, it's such a original voice and such a just wrong show that it's like, <laughs> uh, I really enjoy it. And also had to stop watching it because <laughs> it's just, uh. it, it was the cringiest of the cringe, but boy, did I enjoy it. I, and I, I wish we'd spoken about it. I totally didn't realize it. So. Well, Maybe next time. Next time we have a Casper Kelly joint to discuss, we'll have him back and we'll talk about your pretty faces going to hell. So, so Ben, it's our bill paying time. And I think we should do a quick shout out to Green Tree Creative. Uh, Green Tree Creative is, of course, the company that is run by our producer, Alana Cody. She is building podcasts and doing some social media marketing for other folk out there. And if you like what's going on on this show, if you like what you hear and you've got an idea to make your own podcast or need some some help in the social media world, uh, you should reach out to Alana Cody at Grow with Green tree.com absolutely Ilana has done wonders for our podcast and uh, imagine what she could do for you and now short ends so ben that takes us to our short end portion of uh, this program what is your weekly obsession is there something that's uh, that that you're all about right now oh boy i have a good obsession for this week so firstly, I just have to say chef's kiss YouTube for somehow honing in your algorithm on exactly 100% the thing that I want more than anything else. Ooh, uh, I, ooh, I'm curious now. <laughs> they're, they're like chef's kiss to YouTube. I, I can't like, wait to hear what this is. Well, it's about to migrate to Netflix. So about last Thursday, I saw a thing I'd never seen on, on YouTube. I'd never heard of, even though it's been around for a while. And it's a character named Philomena Kunk. Are you familiar with Philomena Kunk? I am not. Get ready for the rabbit hole of a lifetime. So YouTube served up there like, you would probably like this video. And it's this woman, uh, Philomena Kunk. She's like this redheaded interviewer. Looks kind of conservative and straight laced. And she has kind of a flat affect. I don't know. I can't tell you exactly where in England it's from. And she does these interviews that are the best thing I have seen since Sasha Baron Cohen's original Ali G interviews. And she does these shows, uh, which, so this is what I didn't know is that was the day or the next day Kunk on Earth premiered on Netflix. Hmm. And Kunk on Earth is a five part series that looks like the driest of the history documentaries. And it's this woman, her name is Diane Morgan, who plays the character of Philomena Kunk. And she goes and interviews real experts and just asks often pedestrian, willfully misunderstanding or slightly vulgar. Or it's hard for me to like put my finger on exactly what would typify one of her questions. But a lot, like, for instance, she's talking to a, an expert in King Arthur and she's like, so King Arthur came a lot, didn't he? And the woman's <laughs> no. like, Camelot. She's like, came, it says Camelot, light on this piece of paper. It's like, no, Camelot. He's from the court of Camelot. And then she's like, she just, she'll double down. She's like, so do you think he came a lot or just like a normal man, like a tablespoon? And it's just so, it's so freaking funny. And I have to say, I, I want to do a shout out to the, it, there's It sounds three, like Zach Galifianakis on Between Two Ferns. A little bit, yeah. but it's like, imagine if Zach Galifianakis didn't look like Zach Galifianakis. He he looked like somebody who who you would expect to be hosting, you know, a history or a science documentary show. But I really feel like it's a little bit like Sasha Baron Cohen. The first time I saw Ali G, it was just like, what am I watching? This is insane. And she's so good, so straight faced, like just completely deadpan. The performance is amazing. And I also want to make a shout out to the cinematographers of the show because like this show 
looks like a Nat Geo show or something. It's got drone shots. It's got reenactments. It's classy. It's shot by Pete Rowe, Claudia Cadman, and Andrea Gambadoro. They do such an excellent job. I mean, like, I feel like Diane Morgan, the, the woman who plays Philomena Kunk, is amazing. But those cinematographers make it look so much like exactly what you would see on a Discovery Channel or it's a BBC show, like something that's just a little bit dry. And uh, I, I went back and like, you can find tons of her work on YouTube. She did a whole episode on Christmas that was brilliant. She did a thing on Shakespeare that was awesome. It's super funny. And I feel like it's actually, from a cinematography standpoint, it's interesting to look at it and think about like, okay, so she kind of has this character who's a little bit of a loose cannon, and then they surround her with all the accoutrement to make it look so authentic. Everything. If you turned the volume off, you would have no idea that it was not just kind of a comedy, but hilariously funny. And, and I, I think also Christian Watt, who directed it, uh, deserves a lot of credit. Definitely check it out if you have Netflix. And if you don't have Netflix, go check it out on YouTube. There's tons of her stuff on YouTube. She's been doing this. I, I brought it up to our friend uh, Janelle Riley, who will be doing the Oscar show pretty soon with. And she's like, I've been watching her stuff for 10 years. And I'm like, of course, I'm late to the party. Of course. <laughs> That, that that doesn't surprise me. Uh, Not a, she, that doesn't surprise. Me. Yeah, she's she's very much uh, culturally plugged in. She she knows all of it. Yeah, all the, all yeah. the stuff, all the all the places. Anything that's ever good that I discover and point out to Janelle, she's like, oh my god, yeah, like I already had a whole arc with that. And now I've passed it. Anyway, so Ilya, what is your short end? What is your pet obsession of the week? You know, recently I had a book in Airbnb and I got to say I was a little bit caught off guard because Airbnb had a little press release about Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen now having a place on Airbnb and he's doing it to promote his what? new company, which is like this pottery company. And I think that pottery okay. is sort of like a, a play on words there a little bit too, because I think it's called Houseplant. And really the whole thing is, uh, I think it's paraphernalia, drug paraphernalia for, uh, you know, people who like to get high is, is, is what it seems like. Plus it, anyway, but regardless of this, I, I, you know, me, I'm not a stoner. I'm not, I'm not into any of this stuff, but I got to say that I so appreciate Seth Rogen and the diversity of all of the stuff that he does. And it always, it like, on one hand, I'm always surprised when I see his name pop up in credits. I'm always surprised when I see what it is that he is doing, but I shouldn't be because he has been associated with so many really interesting, really great projects, not just as an actor or as a, as a voice actor, of which there, there's plenty of those, but as a producer and as a writer. And like and a uh, director, and he's he's in the Directors Guild and I do the Western Directors Council meetings because I'm in the Directors Guild. Mm -hmm. And the, since the pandemic, they've been doing them on Zoom. And like he's one of the council members or he was. I don't know if he still is. And so it's like, you know, there'd be like 10 council members. And then how you have no idea how many people are watching it. But anyone in the membership, any director in the membership can watch it. And I, I just remember uh, one time just watching him in his house eating dinner uh, while, while uh, the Western Directors Council was going, which is appropriate, by the way, when they when they do them in person, they they give us food. So nice. That, that That's really cool. But I mean, he's got a ton of not only actor and writer but, and producer credits, but I'm thinking of things like Pam and Tommy, which I know we both uh, really enjoyed. And of course, the boys. I mean, he's doing like really interesting stuff that's getting out there. And then when I, I see his, his, you know, he pops up, he's uh, he's a voice in the new Super Mario Brothers movie. I mean, it's like he's uh, he plays Donkey Kong in that. But it's like I'm constantly amazed that Seth Rogen 
is such a multi-hyphenate that he pops up in all these different places and consistently does really, really high quality work. I, I love it. It's like a surprise. And even when like I, I saw a clip from like super bad pop up the other day and it was like, holy crap, that was Seth Rogen. I don't even remember how many years ago. And uh, Jonah Hill, when Jonah Hill looked like he was probably 12, I, I don't know what it was, but, it, but Seth Rogen is sort of my obsession. And I thought it was actually really cool to see that he's using the Airbnb platform to promote his business by offering stays for at whatever this retreat is, this mid-century modern place with like, you know, uh, music and a hot tub and all this stuff. And the stay with Seth Rogen at this place is $42. And it did very clearly say that Seth Rogen was verified. So he was like verified as the actual host for this. And so that's cool. So, so to me, it's just like, I think that it's great out there when people who you admire their work continue to like push new ways to be out there, be relevant, be in the culture, yeah. uh, you know, spread their wings, try new things. So yeah, Seth Rogen, my short end this week. So Ben, where can people track you down? They want to track you down. You can find me at benrock.com where you'll find all my social media stuff. You can uh, check out my reel, hire me to direct your next, whatever the hell it is. I don't know. Yeah. Say hi. I love it when people who listen to the podcast reach out via Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatnot, or even via my website, whatever you want to do. Ilya, where can people find you? They can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras. HotRodCameras.com is the official website. That's where we sell all kinds of uh, camera equipment. Uh, you can also find me at the various social medias. There's not too many Ilya Friedman, so really easy to, to find me. Ben, let's thank some people. Who should we thank this week? Uh, we should thank Alana Cody for burning the midnight oil and getting us all these awesome Sundance interviews. Sundance kind of came out of nowhere. I know that we always know when it's happening, but it just it seemed like suddenly we were swimming in Sundance. Uh, yeah. And, and I think this year actually, though, was pretty judicious. We actually didn't uh, go crazy. It wasn't like a couple of years ago when we did like every single uh, we saw everything and talked to everyone. But uh, we did, I think, a good job. And we have a couple of good shows with some some winners and some really high quality stuff. I think that uh, we were very discerning this time. So it's great. So Alana kicking all the ass. Uh, we should thank, as always, Ben Katz, who uh, works really hard to edit the show and make us not sound like dopes. And uh, last and not least, uh, we should thank uh, Kay Zalatracci, who even now, even today, was uh, texting or messaging me on Facebook about something I said in a close focus that he didn't agree with. So, oh, well, good on Kay's for taking you to task. Well, OK, can you clarify <laughs> this for me? Because I, I actually I think I am correct. And he keeps doubling down on it. Oh, all right. So the only people who get residuals are writers, directors, and actors, the three guilds, Screen Actors Guild, the Directors Guild of America, Writers Guild of America. They get residuals, meaning every time their show is exploited, so you're, you're on an episode of CSI Miami as an actor, you're on one episode, but every time that gets rerun, you get some amount of money. But IATSE, Teamsters, the other unions, they don't get any residuals. He's insisting that they do because they get a pension, but I'm saying, as far as I know, the pension comes out of when you do the work, IATSE takes a pension payment and they put it in a pension fund and then you eventually get it. But if you were a gaffer on an episode of Seinfeld that ran nine million times, you never got paid for anything but that the very first time you, you worked on that episode. Nothing else would count as residuals. Am I correct? You are correct. I'm sorry, Kays, but uh, the, the reality is, is that if you work in IATSE and you have your contributions go to your uh, health and welfare, your, your, your retirement program, your pension... It's not based on the performance of what that is. If you work on stinkers and they only show once, you're still getting the the hours and the contribution which happened because you worked those hours on that job. 
if you work on, you know, the, the greatest thing of all time that runs and runs and runs and runs and gets tons and tons of residuals, you're making more money because of its popularity, because of its success. It used to be that way with commercials too. commercials actually used to get residuals. Most commercials these days, there's now buyouts. So you're going to make everything you make uh, up front but, as an actor. But IATSE doesn't. Yeah. No, okay. IATSE never. IATSE, yeah, does not get. Get, yeah, yeah, yeah. As a director, like one of the things I actually learned was Loop Group, who come in for a few hours or maybe a day or two on a big project. So Loop Group are like the background people who who do the yakking in a you know peas like and carrots, a, peas yeah, and carrots. Yeah, yeah, you have a scene in a, in yeah in a, in a grocery store and murmur, the, murmur, the murmur, customers. Murmur, yeah, 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 and they can be the other side of the phone. You can have I mean Loop Group can do some pretty cool stuff. They're all SAG. They get residuals on a movie SAG, that yeah. Uh, of course that the editor the dp the costume designer get bupkis uh, yeah get nothing, nothing nothing they they get one chunk of change when they make the thing and if money is put into their pension no more money is ever put into their pension as a result of having worked on something that got a theatrical than a cable than a home video or streaming or whatever. Anyway, I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't wrong and I you, wanted to do it in a, in a stupid public way <laughs> so that if I am wrong, you could just shame me and I would, and I would accept it. You're, you're, uh, oh yeah, Ben, everyone who worked on Sharknado six is rolling on it. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the Sharknados aren't exactly union shops. That's, I guess that's uh, true. That's the, I guess that's, that's true. The I'm sorry. It was, it was, it was, a, it was the yeah, first yeah. off-brand thing that popped in my head. Sharknado has got, <laughs> Sharknado has got the, uh, the, the public, captured the public imagination, that, that series, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah. People immediately know what it is the moment you say Sharknado. So now we, we've thanked everyone. Uh, what's there left to do? It, just uh, sign us off, Ilya. You take us out. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.